I started to think of mysticism as an openness to mystery, not as something that I go and do or that one goes and does and, and sort of sets the scene for that sort of openness per se, but I see it more like as an orientation to life. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Dr. Elise Ambrose, PhD, they, them, is a black queer ethicist, creative, and educator whose research, art, and community praxis lay at the intersections of race, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Ambrose's forthcoming book, A Living Archive, Embodying a Black Queer Ethics, from TNT Clark, Inquiries in Embodiment, Sexuality, and Social Ethics series, centers black queerness in constructing communal-based sexual ethics. Ambrose currently serves as visiting assistant professor of ethical leadership and society at Meadville Lombard Theological School as a Louisville Institute postdoctoral fellow. You can find out more about them at eliseambrose.com. Well, Elise, thank you so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be with you. So one of the ways I love beginning the conversation is asking how you define the words contemplation and mysticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciated the framing of the questions in terms of uh, seeking definitions, because I think that it's interesting to be in conversation with people. And then at some point in the conversation, discover that you're working with different definitions of everything. Right. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's partly why um, from time to time, we're not able to see eye to eye about particular things, but mm. um, you, you gave me an opportunity to really think about how I see these words. And I, I, I thank you for that invitation. So um, I, I started to think of mysticism, mysticism, as an, an openness to mystery. And I see that not as something that I go and do or that one goes and does and, and sort of sets the scene for that sort of openness per se, but I see it more like as an orientation to life knowing that we're going to be encountering mystery. What is the orientation that I have to mystery? And how am I willing to be changed by what I encounter in the mystery? I think those are the questions of mysticism. That's where they lead me. And then when I think of contemplation or contemplative um, processes, I... I think I experience a pause because so much of how I encounter contemplation is not solely in my mind. And, and sort of, I think, I think usually when I hear the word contemplation or contemplative, it, it has to do with reflection and, it, and it's, it's pretty much framed as a, as a rational process. But 
I think of contemplation in terms of like listening with one's whole self. And so that's attunement through the body, um, attunement through previous experiences um, and being able to integrate all of that within the realm of mysticism, right? So it's being willing to, 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 to go where the listening leads. And um, that's, I guess the way that I frame both of these is kind of scary, but um, it's also, it's also uh, illuminating and exciting. And I think there's a quote that goes, there's treasure in the pathless woods. And it, and it makes me just think about, yeah, like when you're in that unknown depth, there's a great deal of treasure to be found in those places if we are um, brave enough to go there. Yeah, yeah. I love how in both those responses, you, I mean, first of all, defining mysticism with questions seems incredibly appropriate to me. And then similarly with contemplation, you talked about this sense of integration and going where the listening leads. So like also like this openness, both as this openness, how, how would you say you see mysticism and contemplation lived out in the world today? I know, I know that's kind of hard because I mean, I think, you know, based on, based on your definitions, you know, the mystical can be in the, the seemingly mundane everyday moments as well as the, the seemingly profound. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing to, to the everydayness um, of mysticism and really the profundity of the mundane ethicist Emily Towns, womanist ethicist Emily Towns talks about the everydayness and it thinks of it as a resource of thinking ethics. So yeah, I think the everydayness is ought to be a part of our conceptualizations of the ultimate because it, it makes me think of an earlier time in my faith journeying where um, and I think a lot of people experience this, but I feel like I was always looking for that profound moment that that time when a prophet will come and speak a word or when um, when some sort of uh, vision would, would take place or some uh, enrapturing moment or something like that. And I was constantly seeking that to know that the divine was present. And I think my faith really took a turning point when I leaned into the everydayness of the divine and that it, and that it's not just those super meta moments, but that it is it, 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 and necessarily must be in the everyday and and that I ought to take it as just true, whether I feel it or not whether there's this amazing thing happening, whether there's um, the heavens have parted for me or not. Just this, I mean, this willingness to believe what it is that I say I believe and to just live into that as, as true and allow anything to speak to me in, in terms of, of how I, and that's, that's what I'm, I'm signaling towards in the openness, like being able to look at a pattern in snow and, and receive some message from nature or to listen to a conversation between people, maybe eavesdrop on a conversation and, and, and learn something about myself in the process and just to, to be open to the many ways that not, not, I would say not only God or the divine, but that 
all that is, is speaking to me and reaching out to me and I'm reaching out to it. And it's, it's a very beautiful, organic and reciprocal relationship that we can be in if I'm aware of it. Yeah. One thing I love that you're, you're touching into that, that I'm going to try to figure out how to ask is this pairing of um, bringing our most full authentic self to the openness or the listening or the wonder or the questions even. I think my question is, do you think we can really have those moments maybe of uh, whether we want to call them mysticism or transcendence or authenticity or even um, a sense of self-liberation if we aren't bringing our, our full authentic self? Because you also talked about, you know, when you allowed your faith to be what your faith is. So I'm wondering about that authenticity of self, that importance of the importance of that. Yeah, I'm really inspired by this quote of, um, and maybe it's a paraphrase, but I feel like I've I've picked it up in engaged Buddhism sort of circles. But this idea that healed people heal communities, healed people heal communities, and I feel like I was just speaking with someone recently about how we have lots of thoughts around like what social healing might look like in terms of like reconciliation or repentance even, or, or forgiveness and all, all of these things about what these processes might look like or calling out or calling in, et cetera. It occurs to me that if we, and I, and I learned this um, in these communities of Buddhism, like if I'm not willing to sit on the mat and face myself, my shadows, my, when we talk about authentic self, we're not just talking about that good. Um, yes, I am beloved. I am, um, <laughs> I am a kind and compassionate person. Yes. Yes. And also there, there are shadows and that's authentic to me. And I think the sooner I can be truthful with myself about that part of me, I can see it in other people and not be jarred <laughs> and not be totally self-righteous and be like, oh, I can't believe they're, they're that way. And it's sort of like, can, can we look in the mirror and not turn away from what we see? And if we're able to do that and be authentic in that and say, this is where I am, then we can do it for other people too and be able to create a community where that sort of imperfection or that proneness to mistakenness or that proneness to even hurting people, not harming, but hurting people can, can be a part of what makes our communities and our settings what they are. They are messy places. They are places where transformation is taking place. So if there's transformation in me, transformation in you, we're bound to clash every now and then. And even be transformed by what we mirror in one another. And I think that that's a, a really beautiful invitation that we can offer one another and, and we can see it in our everyday lives. Again, if we are, are open to the mystery of what happens when we see ourselves and when we see another person. And that's hard because um, I think our structures do not lend themselves to truth. And I hope that, you know, we don't get too caught up on the word truth or what is truth. But um, I do know a little bit about truth 
in that I know the truth of, of myself. I know the truth that is, that is revealed to me in this particular time and space. And I, and I am invited to live into that truth. But I feel like our maybe obsession with appearances of appearing righteous, of appearing to have the right answers, of appearing to be justice-oriented and liberation-seeking is really a hindrance to our actually becoming those people. <laughs> I, I think about uh, with my students sometimes, it's, it's not hard to come across the right answer in this time in our world, right? We have Google, we have blogs, so many ways that we can come across the right answer of how to engage um, a, a person who inhabits difference or a person um, who's experiencing marginalization. We, we have the right answers of how to do that. But I often wonder sometimes if when you're giving me the right answer, has, has the truth of that taken residence in you? And something takes residence in you typically through a not easy path <laughs> is, is, is a, I guess, the simplest way I can put it. So I, I, I think living into, I might say the wrong thing. I might appear to be racist. I may appear to be transphobic. Being okay with that. And then when that person calls you out or calls you in, or when you reflect on your, yourself in that moment and say, wow, that was racist of me, or that was transphobic of me, or that was classist of me, what have you, then that's when the transformation is able to take place. Because, I don't know, maybe there's something to confession and um, repentance and, and going another way, like being able to face the thing and be transformed by it, face truth and be transformed by it. But we're afraid of truth and therefore short circuit the process of being transformed in the interest of preserving our comfort. That was wonderful. And I'm, I'm led to thinking about too, about how, you know, in a, in a world of like quick fixes and easy outs, um, how, how much of this, this transformation requires staying mm. requires being like, you're, you know, you're talking about this discomfort, like sticking in that discomfort, being uncomfortable and, and not just being corrected and then moving on, but being corrected and staying and being corrected and really deepening those connections, no matter how uncomfortable. And I love the the clarification between hurt and harm. Can you unpack that a little more? Because, it, you know, I think it's so important to name that when there's harm, of course, it makes sense to maybe to, to go. Um, when there's hurt, maybe we need to stick with it and move through it together. I don't want to put a, a full blanket on that, but I think that that sounds like a great way of, of creating that that distinction. But if I could add to the brilliance there, I have really been taken by this metaphor that I learned feels like years ago of uh, what happens when there is tension at the encounter with tension, there's sort of two ways to go and pardon the binary, but let's go with it for um, <laughs> just for, for the sake of this conversation. It's uh, we can go in the direction of creative tension or destructive tension in the course of a conversation, 
in the course of sitting with one another, I think we gain a sense of, is this going creative or is this going destructive, uh, particularly for the person harmed um, or the person who's experiencing some sort of pain, I should say. For the person who's experiencing pain, is this leading in the direction of creative or is this leading in the direction of destructive right now? Maybe in time that, that idea can change, but um, in the moment, if it's leading in creative, I think we can say that perhaps there is, there's a hurt that's taken place and we can think creatively about how to address it, how to redress it. And then if we're going in the direction of destructive, then perhaps there's a harm and a need to create a boundary that can um, help in the process of, of healing for that particular person or of that relationship, or maybe not, I don't know. But I, I want to lean maybe to thinking about like creativity versus destruction in the encounter with tension. And that takes attentiveness, attunement, maybe a mediator. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's something about intention there too. I know that intention and impact and, and intention in the face of impact doesn't have as much weight, but I think there's something about a person who's willfully raucous, rambunctious, and, and, and unwilling to see the ways that they may be creating unjust situations for other people. That feels harmful too. I'd be willing to, to see what people think about about those those sorts of distinctions. Yeah, I think, you know, the distinction between the things that are creative and the things that are destructive, the power of, of creativity also kind of puts us in that sense of wonder and questions. And also, you know, the, the, the communal aspect of that, that it, it makes us co-creators. It makes us more bound to each other in the ways that we're like innovating and imagining and um, thinking beyond, it's kind of an invitation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a powerful way to think about it because creativity carries with it, circling back, like we don't know what's going to happen in this creative encounter in terms of mystery. And, and so what does it take, I wonder, to bring oneself to a creative moment and to be willing to engage that process with someone or someone's and to, to, to choose to go creative rather than destructive. I think that's a, um, that seems like a really big question. And it's, um, it's actually making me feel a bit, a bit full and emotional because it's maybe because it's, it's hard and not just hard. Like, you know, First, we have to do this, then we have to do this, then we have to do that, like hard in terms of like number of steps, <laughs> but more like hard because trauma is real and hurt, harm, pain, um, suffering are all real and they inform how we um, are willing or unwilling to come to one another and be vulnerable. And so much of creativity is vulnerability and it's like, there is no way to be like, maybe we can cut out this part and, um, and still get to the amazing um, creative outcome that might be awaiting us. There is no, 
no cutting the vulnerability. There is no cutting the, um, the tension, just erasing that part of the process. And so it really pushes me to think how important it is to be in community and to, lack of a better term, invest oneself in community making and to make that investment with the knowledge that I'm going to encounter humans that are going to rub against me (laughs) in some in some um, some ways that I'm not going to like. And am I willing to am I willing to do that? Am I willing to to listen to my own humanity that yearns for connection and to take the thorn with the rose um, as, as it relates to connection and what that means to be in community with others. Yeah, maybe I'm, um, I'm thinking about what, is it, what does it take to invest oneself in that process that must be, um, that's a doozy. <laughs> Yeah. The way the creative destructive um, tension lives in all our relationships and all of our interactions is just really, really profound. And a, and a way to be creative without discounting things like the, the trauma, the triggering, the real disruption in one's life that, that can really disable us and, and put us in flight, fight, fight or freeze or et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I think I love the insight that you're providing because it makes us think of creativity as sort of a spectrum. So so maybe maybe we're not ready to go full fledged from day one, but we can move at the speed of trust, as as I've 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 heard in, in community, right? And and be able to invest in the creativity, uh, and that's a process, and to approach approach creativity in a way of like i love i love the idea that that every encounter is an opportunity to choose creativity or destruction and then when we enter in, in terms of creativity if we want to orient ourselves in that way to the world where on the spectrum do we want to enter and 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 how can that sort of openness and intention and willingness to be to be building as well as tearing down if necessary and rebuilding how how much we're able to do each of those things given where we are and where the other person is meeting them at a place uh, where they are and being able to do that building together. And again, that takes, that takes community, that takes trust, that takes, and when I say community, I don't mean just proximity, as in like, oh, we're in community because we go to the same place or we're in community because we live in the same neighborhood, but like community that has accountability, community that has shared values around responsibility and, and, um, and growth and, and mistakes and returning to the table again and again. That sort of community, I think, can, can lead us in some, some creative beautiful, ugly <laughs> places <laughs> that are ultimately for our good. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we're willing to sit through the ugly. Yeah. And stay, the stay. So going back to this, you know, you named mysticism as an openness to mystery, 
as an orientation to life and, and added like, you know, all these questions about how am I willing to be changed? And you named contemplation as a listening with one's full self, attunement to our bodies, which was so, so important, so powerful to remember the embodiment of, of contemplation and that, and that integration. Do you find either of those things in your own life, in your work as a Black queer ethicist, educator, and creative? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I feel like I have to have that orientation, those orientations in in all of those, (laughs) in all of those um, parts of myself. I'll take, I'll take, you know, education for an example students are coming to the learning moment with so many experiences prior to entering my classroom our classroom and I'm coming with a lot of experiences prior to entering our classroom together and I've learned from my mentors I guess again, again to this point of like right answers versus transformation. I think that for some people, it's really easy to be a good student. And I heard this actually at a religious educators conference recently. Easy to be a good student. That is somebody who can process information in a way that's much like what I said. <laughs> or process information in a way that's clear and cohesive, rather Western, and, and, and get an A uh, for it. That's, that's a good student, quote unquote, good student. But the person who's going to be transformed in the space, I mean, that's, that's not measurable. And it may not show up as evident for years. right so as as a teacher as an educator as someone who's trying to invite students to see education as a practice of of their own freedom as a way of getting free and inviting others to be free like as I'm inviting them to that I, I cannot be consumed with outcomes and wanting to see what I want to see in a student to say that this, okay, this, this student has done well in this course. I have to be open to the process that they are in and create a culture in the classroom that says we are open to one another's processes. And yes, we will disagree clash from time to time. Yes, we will encounter reading and want to throw it across the room, what have you. That's fine. Let's do that. And let's be open to what can happen in the process. And, and, and sort of my openness means that if a student says something I don't agree with, very frankly, if a student says something I don't agree with, maybe my reaction isn't to jump on them and, you know, as, as they say in my culture, read them for filth and, and cause them to retract from the entire learning experience. I have to have an openness to their journey as well as to what I can be learning in the moment, right? As, a, as the, as the um, educator in the space, what is being, um, th- thinking about the word 
educate, like to pull forth, what is being pulled forth from me in this moment? Um, <laughs> and, and how can I add, add it to the space and invite them to add what they're feeling into the space in a way that can help us all to think differently about something? That's, that's my goal. <laughs> Let's think differently about something. And in our thinking differently about it and really sitting with it and allowing it to, to take residence. And that's, and that's when sort of transformation can take place. And again, that's long-term, that's a long, a long investment, but you know, we do our best, as I say in my syllabus, we do our best and grace will abound. And then in terms of um, my, black, my Black queerness, the two that I, I hold together, I make that all one word, Black queer, because both of those identities, which are also a politics, a way of relating to the world, speak to me of liminality, of making a way out of no way, of uh, returning to the table to rebuild as frequently as I need to, of um, recognizing my interconnectedness and the community that makes me, and I am because we are, uh, right? All of that is integrated in the Black queerness, and it, and it allows me to be open to the mystery of me, and that manifests in my art, my photosonic work. It manifests in how, when I collaborate with a, an, artist, an artistic subject to bring forth some sort of art piece, it's about when my mystery meets your mystery, what can we create that might speak something to um, a public in a way that is generative? Yeah, I, I feel like if I can't be and become this being who is invested in expansion, then I guess I'm just going to fold in on myself and implode. And I really don't prefer that for myself in this lifetime. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, I feel like at least for myself and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put this on anyone else, but the invitation that I feel myself receiving in this lifetime and in this time and space is just expansion and abundance and more and, and not in that greedy sort of way, but in the way of like, there's so much more to encounter. There's so much more to know about what's without and what's within. And, and won't you journey with your ancestors and spirit to, and your community to, to, um, to discover that. Mm. Yeah. When my mystery meets your mystery. I loved, love that phrase. And you know, the, a lot of this conversation has revolved around this notion of creativity and you name the intersections of your work as race, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. You know, I, I'm, I'm realizing maybe the common language of all those things um, comes down to, to creativity, comes down to when my mystery meets your mystery and also accessible language because of the ways maybe, you know, the intersections of your work aren't always the intersections for every person, yet as we find and meet each other, when our mysteries meet each other, it requires creativity and agility to have those hard conversations, have that staying power. And I think where I'm going with this is how, how would you relate uh, your understanding of creativity and your work creatively? Would you say that 
that in and of itself is spiritual. Yeah, it is that necessarily. And maybe I want to, when, I, when I'm thinking of the word spiritual, I want to say that I'm, I'm thinking of um, animation, <laughs> not like a cartoon, but, but like that which animates. And so it's, that's uh, automatically a, 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 phys- a material project as well and concerns all that is. And spirituality and creativity, I, I mean, I mean kind of like, we'll call them bosom buddies in a lot of ways <laughs> because, because they interdepend um, of, you know, uh, creativity animates and moves like the spirit, it blows wherever it, it wishes, right? And then, and then spirituality must, uh, or spirit necessarily um, creates and, and is creative in its orientation to the world. And, and so it's like, I, I really can't think of one without the other. And I think that thinking of them together helps to bring out the artist in me. And, and perhaps helps us all to see the ways that we are able to be creative people, that there is that propensity that many people have, particularly uh, people who are like type A to say like, I'm, I'm not creative. And, and it's like, creative doesn't only look like what you see in among the pilfered items in a museum or um, the, the sort of Western art history that tells us what creative looks like. Like, I feel like when I'm, when I'm creating a meal or when I'm thinking about how can I be more attentive to um, partners or, or how can I, in this very moment, I see the student struggling, how can I engage, right? It, I feel like that's a creative process, but it also takes that interconnectedness that spirit affords us because it's in and through me, in and through you. And, and, I'm a, and we're able to interconnect in that way that we can respond to one another, respond to one another in a way that gets us somewhere. Amen. Amen. I, I want to thank you so much. The things we touched on today were just really, really powerful and important. And I'm just so grateful for your time and your work in the world. So thank you. I thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to be creating with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify, or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com.